Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to this virtual Commonwealth Club program, Reducing Nuclear Weapons, Stopping the War No One Wants. I'm Frederick Barron from the Cooley Law Firm, proudly supporting this program. During this extraordinary period, the Commonwealth Club in the Bay Area is conducting a series of virtual programs. You can learn about these offerings at the commonwealthclub.org website, where you can also donate to support the club's programming. Audience members today can submit questions to the panel using the text chat feature, and please share and like the program on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. From Cooley's vantage point on the immense promise of Silicon Valley's own globalization, it's sobering to witness the globalization of a novel virus, and even more so, the globalization of nuclear weapons proliferation. In nuclear arms control, as in epidemiology, we ignore global interdependence at our global mortal peril. The following are high on the punch list to be addressed today. In the past two years, the U.S. formally withdrew from the Reagan-Gorbachev Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces INF Treaty on ground-launched missiles. Russia then followed suit withdrawing. China, a nuclear superpower, is not actively participating in nuclear negotiations. On the Korean Peninsula and in the Middle East, nuclear threats persist. Major nations, however, have failed to reach consensus or take concerted action to address these pressing threats and others. Two crucial inflection points are looming now. First, A bilateral agreement with Russia must be negotiated to extend the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, New START, before it expires early next year. Second, the 50-year-old Treaty on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, NPT, must be renewed. 191 nations are parties to the NPT, which is the cornerstone of the global non-proliferation and verification regime. Its future is at stake now. It is imperative to harness the upcoming NPT process to chart an international path away from nuclear anarchy and toward cooperation and weaponry wind down. If anyone can point the way through this thicket, it's the distinguished panel assembled here today by the Commonwealth Club. They personify the seasoned judgment that must be brought to bear on nuclear weapons reduction, lest we eventually conquer a confounding virus only to find ourselves staring at a nuclear launch threat. It's my pleasure to turn the program over to our moderator, Dr. Gloria Duffy, the Commonwealth Club's president and CEO. Gloria served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense under Defense Secretary William Perry in the Clinton administration, and she negotiated agreements decommissioning weapons of mass destruction in the former Soviet states. Dr. Duffy will introduce you in greater depth to the remarkable panelists assembled for this forum. Thank you so much, Mr. Barron, and welcome everyone. I'm going to briefly introduce our distinguished panelists, and then I'll ask each of them a question to get our discussion rolling. Uh, George Shultz served as Secretary of State under President Ronald Reagan. In his additional roles as Secretary of the Treasury and Secretary of Labor, he has aided presidents, confronted national and international crises, and argued passionately that the United States has a vital stake in promoting democratic values and institutions. Currently, he's a distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, uh, and he's coming to us today from Stanford. Dr. William Perry, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, was Secretary of Defense under President Bill Clinton. He's Professor Emeritus at Stanford University and a Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. As Secretary of Defense, Dr. Perry galvanized efforts to secure nuclear stockpiles inherited by former Soviet states and presided over the dismantlement of more than 8,000 nuclear weapons. And he's also my former boss. He is coming to us today from Palo Alto, California. Rose Gottemuller recently retired as as Deputy Secretary General of NATO and also served as Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security at the U.S. State Department under President Obama. 
She was the chief negotiator for the most recent strategic arms reduction treaty, commonly referred to as New Start. She is coming to us, I believe, from Mountain View, California. Izumi Nakamitsu has served as United Nations Undersecretary General of Disarmament Affairs since 2017. She also served as the Director of the Asia and Middle East Division of the United Nations Department of Peacekeeping Operations. I presume she's coming to us from New York today. And Edmund G. Jerry Brown served four terms as California's governor, in addition to serving as the state's attorney general and as mayor of Oakland, California. He has long worked to increase dialogue and reduce international tensions, especially those between the U.S. and Russia. And I presume you're coming to us from Calusa, California. I'm going to begin by asking each panelist in turn for their perspective on the current nuclear threat. So let's start with you, Secretary Schultz. Could you please frame the issues as you see them that we're talking about today? Well, first of all, I note that the Bulletin of Atomic Sciences, which is a group of scientists started after the Manhattan Project. So these are businesses who know what they're talking about. I think, Jerry Brown, you're now a part of this operation, but they have what they call a doomsday clock. It's now set just before midnight. The closest ever been to midnight. Why? Because the powers who have nuclear weapons are perfecting them and working on them and proliferating. You have wild cards around like North Korea. You have disputes between, let's say, India and Pakistan where a conventional war could easily morph into a nuclear war. You have all kinds of possibilities with the use of nuclear weapons. So that's a big problem. What to do? Well, I think, first of all, we've got to dust off Rose Goddard Miller again and have her do New Start. And get she's wisely put into it a provision that allows it to be extended for another five years and Oddly, the Russians have publicly stated they're glad to do that. So what's the matter with us? Let's get our own government going and and do that. And in the process, there ought to be a discussion between Russia and uh, the United States about that. And maybe that can broaden itself out to a bigger discussion. And maybe China could be invited to join. So those things that, uh, that could be done. And I think it would be wonderful to have them done. Now, Bill Perry and Sam Nunn and I, not too long ago, wrote a piece suggesting that the Congress appoint a high-level observer group, as we had in the 1980s. Let's have some big shots from Congress get together and work with the administration to help develop views on this. They can go to sessions and listen and be part of it. So on the one hand, they could contribute their ideas And on the other hand, when people come back with an agreement, it would be relatively easy to get it ratified. That happened in the 80s, and it was very useful. So those are things that we should do to get things going. But the key is to take advantage of the fact that there is a five-year extension looming. Russia has said it's ready to go ahead with that. And let's go, United States, get going. It's up to us. Thank you, Secretary Schultz. Let's turn now to Secretary Perry. Could you tell us uh, your views about new technologies, new defense and strategic technologies and their impact on strategic stability? The situation that George described is sort of fundamentally unstable. And summing up, I believe the same point that he made, that the probability of a nuclear catastrophe today is actually greater than it was during the Cold War. This could happen. By a, not by a calculated attack by the U.S. on Russia or by Russia on the U.S., but by an accident or by miscalculation. That has happened before. We've had accidents, false alarms. I myself personally experienced two false alarms, one of which came very close to waking the president and asking him to make a decision to launch. It could happen by miscalculation, of which the Cuban Missile Crisis is the poster child. This likelihood is not maybe one in a hundred certainly remote, but even one in a hundred is odds with you when you consider that the outcome is a, is a catastrophic end of civilization. 
those odds are too high and we ought to do everything we can to, to lower them. How does technology come into this? Unfortunately, technology actually aggravates the problem rather than eases it. The technology, for example, cyber technology opened up the possibility that our command link ordering a nuclear weapon could somehow be interfered with. It could it would take a, some malignant source that would deliberately want to stimulate a false launch. Or if we wanted to launch, if we had a legitimate launch command, it could find a way of stopping us. So the technology in this case actually makes the problem worse and not better. What can we do to actually lower this danger? The things we can do are more political than they are technology. We could end the sole authority of the president to launch nuclear weapons as it stands now. Only one person can make that decision and no one can stop him if he decides to launch it. We can end the launch on warning policy that we have today and we can begin to phase out those nuclear weapons that are especially susceptible to false alarm. So the issue is how do we reduce the likelihood of an act of bonding into nuclear war, war through a miscalculation or through an accident. And unfortunately, technology doesn't add to that problem. It only aggravates the problem. Thank you so much, Dr. Perry. Let's turn to Undersecretary Nakamitsu. Could you tell us about the status of the Non-Proliferation Treaty? Thank you, Dr. Duffy. Um, so we've heard about the growing dangers posed by nuclear weapons and, and the factors that are precipitating the increasing possibility of their use. Suffice to say, I guess, uh, the potential for the use of nuclear weapons is higher than it has been since the darkest days of the Cold War. Um, I think the real problem is that there is a clear absence of trust, diminishing transparency, and also resulting, as a result, a reliance on military instead of diplomatic solutions. It is an evolving and, I would say, very fluid environment in which the dangers of miscalculations are really uh, magnified. So it requires an urgent return to dialogue, agreement on transparency and confidence-building measures, and proper consideration of not only how to preserve the great gains already made, but also to pursue uh, disarmament, non-proliferation, and arms control in a changed environment. And I want to emphasize here that we at the United Nations see disarmament, non-proliferation, and arms control as important tools for security, and not as an idealistic or utopian philosophy, if you will. And I would argue that historically, um, there used to be that understanding between the superpowers, even during the Cold War. Um, at the multilateral level, um, I believe that the NPT, uh, with its review cycle, remains the best mechanism to facilitate the achievement of these goals. And as I have said on so many occasions, the uh, NPT is a pillar of international security for three reasons. Number one, it contains verifiable non-proliferation obligations. Number two, they are legally binding disarmament commitments. And number three, it's near universal membership uh, means that these commitments and obligations are assumed by the vast majority of the international community. And I think the diversity of membership, including most of the developing world, is important because a nuclear war would have global consequences, as we all know. Uh, in this context, while arms control agreements may be of limited membership, they are of value to the entire international community. And likewise, all states have a responsibility to pursue the elimination of nuclear weapons. And while multilateral approaches to disarmament are not only path to take, not the uh, only path to take, their inclusivity uh, helps to create a strong global norms, which is also quite uh, a key. Um, as many of you know, the 10th NPT review conference has been postponed due to the COVID-19 uh, crisis, but it will be held and the state's parties uh, and other stakeholders should really use this hiatus as an opportunity to lay the ground for success. And I think there are several ways in which state's parties can use the review conference to reduce the growing danger of nuclear weapon use. 
and get us back on the path to a world free of nuclear uh, weapons. Uh, and let me just suggest very quickly five. First, they can reaffirm their commitment, hopefully at the high level, uh, to the NPT and all commitments they have assumed as parties. And second, they can return to the logic of President Reagan and General Secretary Gorbachev by collectively recognizing that a nuclear war cannot be won and must not be fought. Third, they can agree on risk reduction measures and confidence building mechanisms, including on verification and compliance. Fourth, uh, they can agree that challenges to the non-proliferation regime are not static and, and therefore uh, the regime cannot be either. Uh, it really needs to be uh, adapted to the evolving threats of this century. And then fifth, therefore, the review conference should be a springboard for dialogue on how to think about disarmament, non-proliferation and arms control in today's geostrategic conditions as well. Um, so an obvious development that would uh, can certainly help success at the review conference will be the extension of the new start in order to avoid both the dangerous situation of unconstrained nuclear competition and also to buy, I would say, buy time for uh, further negotiations. And it would also be a demonstration, uh, I would like to suggest, uh, of the United States and the Russian Federation's implementation of their Article 6 commitments. So um, in concluding, the pandemic, I think, is teaching all of us that international crisis can only be resolved through solidarity, compassion and strong institutions. And I think these are the lessons that can translate also to the challenges of international peace and security and especially to nuclear weapons. And I hope these are the lessons that we are all learning. Thank you. Thank you, Undersecretary Nakamitsu. Turning to my good friend, uh, former Deputy Secretary Gottemuller, could you talk about the New START Treaty? What could be next, extending it, European views on these issues? Very good, and thank you, Gloria, for this opportunity to, to join such a distinguished group, but also to speak to the Commonwealth Club members and your wider audience. I would like to pick up on what uh, George Schultz and also Izumi Nakamitsu had to say about the New START Treaty, focusing first on its contribution to our national security as well as to global peace and stability. When the first START Treaty entered into force in 1994, the United States and Russia each deployed approximately 12,000 strategic nuclear warheads. START cut those numbers in half to about 6,000 on, on each side. The Moscow Treaty of 2002 cut the numbers further to about 2,200 on each side. The New START Treaty has now reduced the number of strategic warheads deployed by the U.S. and Russia to 1,550. From 12,000 warheads in 1994 to 1,550 in 2020, that is an, an enormous success for nuclear disarmament, but it has also benefited our national security, ensuring that we are not facing an unpredictable nuclear opponent nor a destabilizing nuclear arms race. Indeed, this nuclear stability has benefited the world as a whole. But we still have work to do. Those warhead numbers should be further reduced, and additional global players such as China also need to be involved in the process. But for negotiators uh, to succeed, we need a stable and predictable basis on uh, which to talk. That is why extension of the New START Treaty is so important According to the terms of the treaty, it may be extended for five years beyond February 2021, so pretty easy to do, no further negotiation required, and as Secretary Schultz said, the Russians have already said they're ready to go. Otherwise, the treaty will expire. That five years, if the treaty is extended, will give us the opportunity to negotiate further nuclear reductions below the 1,550 warheads and constrain new and dangerous nuclear weapon systems. It also gives us the time to work with new players and bring them into the process, the Chinese, but possibly other players as well. Without those five years and without the treaty, I fear a rapid deterioration in our security environment. 
The Russians have a lot of warheads in storage, and they could quickly break out of the constraints of the New START Treaty if it goes away, uploading additional warheads, perhaps several hundred, on their already existing missiles. They wouldn't need to buy or build any more missiles. They could simply put more warheads on them. So we need to ask ourselves, do we want to face more Russian nuclear weapons, or would we prefer to keep producing them? That is the stark choice before us, the United States of America, but also it is one that concerns the international community as well. One final word. I want to stress that the NATO allies are strong supporters of the extension of New START. They are very articulate on this score from the top political leaders in the alliance on down. They will continue to urge the extension of the New START Treaty as a vital facet of European security as well as global security. Again, thank you for this opportunity. I look forward to our discussion. Thank you so much, Rose. Turning to you, Governor Brown, what is the importance of dialogue? What do leaders need to do to reduce the nuclear threat? And you need to unmute. We're unmuted. All right. So there you see an example of a technical glitch that could also apply at the nuclear level because human beings are flawed. So with that example in mind, I will respond to your question about dialogue. It's never been uh, less uh, or more shallow than it is today. The weaponry, as uh, Bill Perry uh, suggested, uh, is in a dangerous state. Uh, the chance of a blunder or accident, false alert, rising. And yet in the face of all that, Russians and Americans are talking less. So what we're facing here uh, in the absence of dialogue is a rising danger with less uh, pathways of communication that are uh, used and, uh, and operated in a way that if there's some crisis, uh, U.S. and Russia could talk to one another. We know from the virus, the coronavirus, it just came out of the blue. I mean, there were people predicting a pandemic, but it certainly was the surprise hard for people to believe. Well, a surprise could happen in nuclear weapon system as well. And, and yet it's hard to get on the alert for what uh, doesn't exist yet. And that's where we are. We haven't had any nuclear explosions since Nagasaki. And that's what makes it particularly difficult. Now, if you look back at starting with uh, one partner here, uh, the U.S., if you go to Congress, there's very little interest in nuclear weaponry. There's even less interest in dialogue with Russia. Russia is now being uh, stigmatized in a way that makes dialogue more and more less plausible and less politically attractive. If you speak with uh, members and leaders in Congress, as I have, you uh, will find very quickly that the matters that we're talking about today are of little interest. Uh, this is not on the agenda. If you look in the media, uh, the news of the day uh, is is what is prevailing, and that news of the day does not involve nuclear risk. Uh, the movement of the doomsday clock uh, closer uh, to doomsday, to the wipeout possibly of civilization, that was not deemed news uh, by the New York Times and other major outlets. It wasn't so. So uh, we have a, a major challenge here just in waking up people to what is and what the dangers uh, before us. So I would say we have to find a way for prominent people to bring back into the mainstream uh, discussions domestically about nuclear weaponry and also the uh, plausibility, the, the righteousness of dialogue with Russia, with adversaries. And there's too much uh, thinking, mistaken thinking, that you punish people by not talking. Uh, it's just the opposite. Uh, when there's danger and when there's things we don't like about Russia, it's time to talk. And there is now uh, a, an environment that I see, and I've watched the political scene for well over 50 years. It's highly unusual, the blaming. It's a blame game, uh, not a inquiry game. And we're not in the inquiry, what do we need to do? What should we do? So on this very important issue, it's not on the agenda, and we've got to get it back on the agenda. You've got to wake up Congress, and yes, a committee such as George Schultz uh, suggested makes a lot of sense. 
But so far, uh, I'd say uh, the ears are plugged and we have to open up uh, the, the listening of prominent people to get what we're talking about today, even on the agenda. In fact, I would say this meeting uh, is perhaps even subversive of the status quo and the conventional thinking, because it's not about weapon systems. New START is just getting on the agenda the last few months. We need to uh, accelerate uh, first the focus and then the conversation and then the dialogue. We do all that. Uh, we got a fighting chance. Thank you, Governor Brown. And let's hope that this program is a start and we'll get this discussion around as broadly as we can. Secretary Schultz, did you have a comment? Well, you mentioned personal things. So let me tell you the story of President Reagan. When we took office, the relationship between the U.S. and the Soviet Union could not have been worse. When they invaded Afghanistan, President Jimmy Carter caught off all relations, no athletes to the Olympics, no talks of any kind, zero. And I had run the U.S.-Soviet economic relationship when I was Secretary of Treasury, and I felt this was very uncomfortable, particularly with the nuclear things. And I discovered in my private conversation with President Reagan that he thought nuclear weapons were immoral. And so I worked to start. I tried to get permission to have Ambassador de Brennan come to see me once a week, and we would find weeds in the relationship and get them out before they grew. So that was set up. And one time I was returning from a trip to China, and it was very bad weather. I was lucky to land. Snowed all day Friday, snowed Friday night, snowed Saturday. Our phone rings, and Nancy Reagan says, why don't you bring your wife and come over and have supper with us at the White House? So we go over there. And they start asking me about the Chinese leaders. What are they like? They have a sense of humor. Can you find their bottom line? And then he knew I didn't know the Soviets, so he started asking me about them. And I'm sitting there, and it's dawning on me, this man has never had a real conversation with a big-time communist leader. He's dying to have one. So I said, Mr. President, the is coming over next Tuesday at 5. What if I bring him over here and you can talk to him? He said, that's a great idea. It'll only take about 10 minutes. All I want to tell him is his new leader, Andropov, it wants to have a constructive conversation. I'm ready. Wow, that was a blockbuster. In other words, you got to have a leader who's willing to lead and do what he thinks is right, and then people will follow him. And that's what we had with President Reagan. So the Brennan came over. We, we were there at least an hour and a half. Talked a lot about Soviet Jewry. It was impressive because he had names and places and incidents. But it was just general, general stuff. We talked about Palestinians who had rushed into our embassy, and they were still there. And, of course, we talked about nuclear weapons. And so on the way back to the State Department, the Brennan and I agreed, let's do something about the Pentecostals, see if we can get that resolved. So we exchanged pieces of paper back and forth, and finally I got one that I thought was pretty good. So I took it over to the president. I said, Mr. President, please don't call your lawyer. I'll tell you there are too many holes in this memo. But I think with all the background, if we get them to come out of the embassy, they will be allowed to go home and eventually emigrate. So we rolled the dice, and we did that. And they were allowed to go home, and they were allowed to emigrate. But not just them, all their families, 50 or 60 people. It was a giant event. And the press was all wondering, well, how did this happen? Reagan never said a word. And I thought that this was a little element. You mentioned trust early on, of trust. Because he saw you could make a deal with these people, and they would carry it out. They saw the same thing. They knew how tempting it was for an American politician to say, look what I did. And he said he wouldn't say anything, and he didn't. So you can trust him. Earlier, somebody said something about trust as a coin of the realm. That's right. And I think that's the kind of personal relationship somehow ought to be brought about. Well, all of you have talked about steps we need to take. But at this time, we're sort of seeing backsliding in most of these areas. 
we the U.S. has pulled out of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement, uh, charging the Russians with cheating. Uh, New START may be about to expire. The Iran Agreement has gone by the wayside. Uh, now there's a rumor that the president is going to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, so what do you see in terms of the actual trends and how 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 does change occur? Is there a philosophy in this administration in the U.S.? How can that be changed? How can the leadership you're talking about come to fruition? Well, it all starts at the top, Gloria. You can't do it if you're down below somewhere. So that's where we have to look. I think it would be very helpful if we could get someone like Mitch McConnell uh, or some of the people in, in on the Republican side of the U.S. Senate talking to the president. So, yes, talk to the president through people whom he respects, but also uh, try to win over some of the senators. I don't think they understand the, what a nuclear weapon can do. Or if they know theoretically, they haven't really engaged it in a realistic way. What do these weapons mean? I think they have their head in their sand, uh, the uh, head in the sand. They're not thinking about it. So somebody's got to wake up um, the leadership. Uh, you start with the president, you get the president's assistant, or you get uh, some of the senators. They, they're not. They, uh, we have to talk about it. I brought uh, went with Bill Perry and Sam Nunn, and we talked to some of these leaders, and some of them uh, couldn't even talk about it for more than two minutes before getting off to another topic. So I think the first step is to educate the people as close to the president as possible to the danger that is before us and the obvious next step of open skies, staying in it, and the new start. Those are the the, the product. Uh, but before you can get there, you, you have to get some allies in powerful positions. Maybe it's people in the private sector. Somebody has got to bring this topic before uh, the president and some of the leaders uh, of the Senate on the Republican side, also on the Democratic side. From what I've said, and I've talked to many of them, uh, this is of no interest. Uh, there's a few that are worried about New START in the House, uh, maybe a couple in the Senate, but nowhere near what it takes uh, to create uh, the, the uh, consensus or the mood that would move a president uh, in the way that we're talking about today. This is one reason why Bill and Sam and I advocated having the Congress appoint a high-level observer group that would represent congressional uh, interest in this whole matter. Could um, the, So the Open Skies Treaty is the next one uh, potentially on the chopping block. Uh, could anyone explain what the Open Skies Treaty is and what its importance is? It's one of, it's probably the first of the treaties of the, of the modern uh, nuclear arms control era. Well, perhaps I'll make a start, uh, Gloria. The Open Skies Treaty was actually uh, a, an idea of President Eisenhower to begin with. So it has deep historical roots. And uh, he believed uh, greatly that if we could have, and this was in the early uh, post-World War II era, so in the, still in the 1950s, but if we could have uh, some predictability and transparency with regard to conventional forces, that would help uh, to sustain and maintain peace over time. And the idea is that, uh, just as the treaty says, open skies, both uh, all parties, basically, and there are many signatories among the U.S. allies in Europe, but also partners like Sweden and Finland, uh, who are not NATO allies, are uh, members of the Open Skies Treaty. And we fly over the territory of the Russian Federation and some other uh, territories uh, in in. Uh, what we call the former Soviet space. But the Russian Federation has been uh, the most flown over in terms of having uh, aircraft flights by allies and partners on aircraft that are run by, again, various partners. The United States has a fleet of aircraft, but but so do the Norwegians, the Germans, etc., and and the Swedes. And uh, we are able to take pictures of uh, Russian military facilities and, and what is going on uh, inside uh, the Russian military establishment. They can do the same to us. They come and fly over the United States and uh, they fly over Europe. It's been extraordinarily valuable to NATO allies because many of them don't have big overhead satellites. They don't have expensive intelligence gathering gear. But the photos that come off of the, new, uh, of the uh, open skies aircraft are available to all 
and they can use them again to develop uh, their own analyses of what's going on and enhance mutual confidence and predictability. They've also been a great tool in the period since Russia illegally seized uh, the Crimea, and uh, the NATO allies have used new, uh, have used the flights from the Open Skies Treaty to signal to the Russians that uh, they are headed down the wrong path. For example, with their seizure of Ukrainian naval vessels in the Kerch Straits in November of 2018. So it has multiple uh, applications, but it's been extraordinarily valuable and is highly regarded by U.S. allies and partners in Europe as something very valuable for their security. So I might ask Dr. Perry to talk a bit about this. I know your your field in business was in surveillance, in the surveillance field. So what do you see as the importance of this agreement? And I believe you and Senator Nunn and Mr. Schultz have come out or about to come out begging the president essentially to stay in the Open Skies Treaty. I think there are two different ways of looking at the Open Sky Treaty and all of the treaties, as a matter of fact, aside from the substantive value of being able to look into what's going on in Russia today, which was very important back in the days when Eisenhower negotiated this treaty, not so important today because of our satellite systems. But in addition to that, we have the dialogue that goes on in, in administrating the treaty. We have Russians and Americans talking with each other on issues of mutual importance. That's also two of our arms control treaties, which provide for the discussion between Americans and Russians. Aside from that, we have no dialogue today. We have nothing going on between U.S. and Russia talking about nuclear dangers, talking about nuclear issues. That is a catastrophe in and of itself. So these treaties are the last vehicles we have for dialogue. It shouldn't be that way, but that's the way it is. So I'm strongly supportive of the treaties for that reason alone, quite aside from the the objective benefits of them. So moving to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, another treaty whose future is up in the air at the moment, could you tell us a little bit, Under Secretary Nakamitsu, about the process for reviewing the treaty, the importance of the treaty, when you expect the review conference to take place, what you expect to come out of it? Yeah, um, so the NPT, um, as I always say, this is absolutely one of the most important cornerstones of international peace and security. Um, so it is absolutely important that the next review conference, the 10th ones, whenever it would take place, uh, it's not exactly, it's not exactly certain. Uh, we have a tentative date. Uh, but obviously it will depend on the COVID-19 situation. Uh, let's hope that it will, uh, it will take place as, as soon as uh, 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 it is possible. Um, it will be very important to have a, a good outcome from this review conference. But let me say uh, very clearly that um, even if we don't have um, a comprehensive uh, um, outcome document adopted, I don't think it will actually completely uh, result in the collapse of the NPT treaty. It is a very resilient uh, treaty, uh, precisely because all states parties, including the P5, uh, the nuclear weapons states, they recognize the value of that treaty as a pillar of international security. Um, So um, we need to remember that there is no template, if you will, This is what we really need to achieve as an outcome document. There is no template. Uh, What we need in the current um, geopolitical tensions, um, you know, at the international level, we need to be very um, uh, creative in terms of how we uh, come up with a a good outcome, uh, which can be accepted by all states parties. Now, obviously, it will require political leadership. And I would argue, I always say that everyone, all states parties, including uh, nuclear weapon states and non-nuclear weapon states, have a responsibility vis-a-vis the treaty. It is important that everyone uh, demonstrates the full implementation of past commitments. Um, But uh, I think taking advantage of the treaty's uh, 50th uh, anniversary of enter into force um, as a momentum, 
uh, will uh, hopefully help us help states parties to come up with a reasonably good outcome and and that's why i've been suggesting those uh, five issues as uh, potential key elements um, and um, you know one good news is that even with the covid-19 crisis and and the physical meetings have not been possible um, states parties actually are having very active consultations uh, the president-designate has been extremely uh, active in, in pulling together those states' parties and, and, and um, conducting uh, good consultation processes. So um, let, let us hope that there will be a, a political momentum uh, towards uh, a successful review conference. Um, let me just note, we have with us uh, Professor Raymond Jean-Lowe, who's a physicist, and chair of the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Arms Control and International Security, Professor Jean Lowe. Thank you so much, I'm Dr. Duffy and distinguished colleagues. It's been a pleasure working with many of you over the years. Um, indeed, from a technical point of view, and here I speak as someone who uh, has discussions with uh, technical experts in the United States and also around the world, I have to say, uh, on the one hand, that we feel very frustrated and concerned, but on the other hand, there is also quite a bit of hope. Let me start with the first one. We all know now, especially in hindsight, that no country felt itself adequately prepared for the new, the novel coronavirus, the COVID-19, even though healthcare professionals and public health experts were telling us for years, a pandemic is a real possibility, you should be worried about it. In many ways, those of us who deal with nuclear weapons issues see a parallel. Nuclear weapons from a technical point of view present clear and present danger to countries and societies around the world. And it's in that sense that we are somewhat frustrated and concerned that lack of attention makes it so easy to just put it at the back of one's mind that this is not really the most urgent and pressing problem. It isn't right now, but it can become one of the hugely overwhelming problems for the world at large. With that as a background, let me leave, let me emphasize a hopeful message. It is indeed true that in the end, all of the Policy discussions, let alone treaty decisions, have to be made at the political level. We understand that. But the good news is there's a rather rich and extensive technical and military community that is quite committed to maintaining discussions. And we do have discussions quietly behind closed doors between potential adversary nations and also between allies. And it's in those technical and military communities, including some of the panel members that we have present uh, today, that we have uh, the ability to compare notes with each other and to make sure that we at least understand what are some of the trigger points, what are some of the concerns on both sides. By the way, this is to reinforce a point made by just about everyone on this panel, under Secretary Nakamitsu, under Secretary Gottemuller and others, one of the key outcomes of the treaties, for example, the Open Skies Treaty, as well as New START, is that it engages military personnel, inspectors on the ground, working together with each other so that people get to know each other, get to know their capabilities, and even get to know the terminology that they use. And it may seem really dumb, but understanding the concepts and the words that we use has turned out to be one of the chief hurdles in moving forward. So again, on the technical level, we have been working hard to, to try and define terminology, define concepts. What does deterrence mean, for instance? And it's that deep bench of technical foundation that we have that we would offer in service of the policymakers who can now come in and, as many have emphasized, extend new start or maintain uh, treaties like the Open Skies Treaty that are so helpful to our stability and security around the world. Thank you very much, Professor Jean Lowe. I'd like to direct this uh, question to Governor Brown and uh, Deputy Secretary Gottemuller. So let's say the U.S. had a strong desire to deal on these issues. Uh, you've both worked with the Russians, rose throughout your career, Governor Brown, in exchanges and dialogues that you've had over the years. Do we have a an interlocutor, a uh, partner on the other side? What's going on in the Russian political environment? 
are would they be able to engage with us? All right, I'll I'll take a, a crack at it and then pass the floor to you, Governor. Uh, I have found that uh, actually after uh, it's actually been since the Cuban Missile Crisis back way back in the early 1960s, over 50 years ago, when we felt this deep sense of crisis between the USSR at the time and the United States, and in that context began to develop the the means and methods and the experts, the people who could work together in the diplomatic setting. And Ray jean was quite right, bringing military expertise to bear. And uh, now we have uh, not only a deep bench, I would say, of expertise in some ways, but we also have a really strong, uh, strong experience base, experiential base uh, with the Russians. And so we actually do speak the same language in many ways at the negotiating table. That doesn't mean by any by any stretch of the imagination that we have identical interests. And of course, a negotiation is always about battling for your own interests and seeing how you can best serve your own interests in uh, also getting the yes with an opponent who, who needs to get something out of the negotiations as well. But I, at the moment, I feel uh, quite confident that we could move on and negotiate a new uh, arms control deal, a nuclear arms control deal that would uh, serve the U.S. national security interests. We do have the capacity and capability to do so, not least because at the moment we do have active inspections going on all the time in the Russian Federation for the new START treaty. So we have inspectors who are experienced. We have weapon system operators who understand how to deal with inspectors. All of these pragmatic uh, tools are out there for us. I do fear if somehow New START goes away and we have no more inspection experience, we have no more opportunities to work with the Russians inside their nuclear facilities and they and our nuclear facilities on verification and monitoring, I do fear in, in a couple of years that experience base will weaken and fade. And so that is something that we have to think about. Uh, we have built up the capacity and capability it gives us 24-7 eyes on the Russian nuclear arsenal. Is that not in our interest? And uh, it also gives us the tools to negotiate new treaties. Governor Brown. What, what about uh, Mr. Putin, though, and his, his group? Uh, Mr. Putin has said that he's ready to renew the START treaty. So he's not the problem. The problem is here. We should get going, as Rose says. Well, I do want to say something about I think I can quote this conversation, but I've spoken with Henry Kissinger several times on, on this very topic. And he has met repeatedly uh, with uh, President Putin, and he believes that if Putin says something, he'll stick to it, and that he's a person you can negotiate with. So that's one person who uh, uh, is not perfect, uh, but has a lot of experience in this particular field. Uh, secondly, speaking from what I understand, politics, uh, Russia has become, uh, like China is also, a, a whipping boy. So forgetting how, uh, what the numbers of good and bad points about Putin and Russia, uh, now in the domestic political dialogue, political commercials are being made, uh, speeches are being made, news shows, um, uh, MSNBC, you can name it. Uh, Russia is a good uh, target uh, to uh, get off these domestic problems that are so hard to deal with. So we've got to deal with that. And I believe something that um, uh, it, it, it reflects something very, very dangerous, but very true when uh, President Trump said, what good are nuclear weapons if you don't use them? And that uh, sheer lack of understanding the nature of nu- the power of nuclear weapons is not just what President Trump is thinking. If people thought about it and knew what the people on this panel know, uh, there'd be a lot more concern. So uh, uh, Putin has whatever you want to say. I've got several books here on Mr. Putin, and I, you can list all the uh, the misdeeds and, and traits that you don't like. Uh, but the fact is, we worked with Putin in the past. We uh, work with him even now, and it's absolutely imperative. And we're not perfect either. Either Some of our uh, bad points are different than some of Putin's bad points. But whatever the points are, if I can now quote uh, Bill Perry here, you got to separate the variables. And the variable of nuclear 
uh, blunder is so powerful that we got to focus on that one while we, uh, you know, leave the, we can deal with all the other issues. But right now, New Start is up and we got Putin's buy-in. Now we got to get Trump's. It's that simple. And on the other, on the weapon systems, what, are, what is destabilizing? There's all sorts of things to be talked about. But I can tell you, and I've talked to the many political leaders in Washington, this is not a serious topic. The threat of nuclear blunder is a non-issue in the minds of many, many powerful people in Washington. Not all. So the first job is we've got to get the topic taken seriously, and then we've got to push uh, for this five-year extension. And I don't know. I'm hoping that even if we don't do it this year, we can do it in January of next year. But we have no we have no idea who's going to be president. It's certainly uh, you cannot tell that right now. It's unknowable. So in that sense, we shouldn't wait. We should get the whatever powers to be uh, bring, being brought to bear on on the president, on the president's men around him, uh, and whatever other advisors, and also deploying the Senate uh, where we can. Yeah, because and I guess the barrier, and it's not a technical point. It's it's a, a human understanding point. Just understanding what the stakes are is the first job. Communicating that, and I don't. I believe that we can get that over. I think things would follow logically, and New Start would be uh, uh, confirmed uh, for another five years, and then we can go uh, into these other points that are profoundly important, but don't have to be get done this year. So we have a number of questions coming in from our audience. There are several about North Korea, and I'm going to pose those to Undersecretary Nakamitsu and Dr. Perry. Questions about how do you assess the current deadlock in U.S.-North Korea talks, especially as related to North Korea's nuclear threat? And then Dr. Perry has a long history of dealing or trying to deal with the North Koreans. So same question. What's the threat from North Korea? How should we proceed? Um, obviously, we don't have any direct information sources, but we do very closely monitor um, situations um, uh, in DPRK. Um, the signs that we, we see uh, is, is not terribly encouraging at the moment. Um, we don't know exactly how, what's happening with the COVID-19 situation within DPRK, uh, but they seem to be uh, a clear sort of uh, uh, signs coming from DPRK that they wanted to pursue um, their military um, uh, um, uh, development path uh, rather than uh, re-engaging uh, diplomatically to, to seek solutions. And we had a great hope, we had a serious hope for the, the, the bilateral dialogues between the United States and DPRK. And we would definitely like to urge both countries to return to that path. Um, I think um, overall situation in the region also remains uh, quite uh, um, difficult. Um, this is a time when, um, in fact, uh, all um, countries that are that have a stake in that uh, DPRK uh, denuclearization uh, interest to come together and 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 uh, return and encourage two countries um, uh, to um, to return to a diplomatic path. But the signs that we see at the moment um, are not terribly um, um, positive. Dr. Perry, from your experience, how should we proceed with North Korea? We should proceed from a realistic view of what the North Koreans can and will do. When we were negotiating with them, when I was negotiating with them two decades ago, our goal was to keep them from building a nuclear arsenal. I think we had a probability of succeeding then, but through a failure of imagination, both on the part of the American government and the Korean government, we'd never be able to push that through. Now they have a nuclear arsenal, and the Trump administration thinks they're going to be able to negotiate with them to get them to give it up. I think that's a fool's errand. They're not going to give it up. What we ought to be negotiating with them on is, is ways to be sure that it is made, they're not building it up and they're not going to use it. I think they have no real motivation to use that nuclear arsenal. They're using it. They, they want it for deterrence purposes. But we ought to be sure of that. And so we change as long as our negotiation goal is as it's now stated to be, to get them to give up a nuclear arsenal. 
I believe we will not succeed. So the first step is to get a more realistic goal and then to get back to negotiating again. And the goal is to make that nuclear arsenal safer from our point of view, from the world's point of view. Let's go back to this question of political will in the U.S. Someone has the question, how can we raise more public awareness about this issue that leads to people asking their elected officials to take action? Yeah, I would like to um, uh, emphasize the importance of bringing younger people into this issue. Um, and, you know, these days uh, at the United Nations in disarmament and international uh, field, security field, we don't have a lot of encouraging um, uh, discussions. But one thing that was very encouraging last year's uh, first committee, which is the G- General Assembly's uh, Committee on Disarmament and International Security, was the uh, adoption for the first time of a um, resolution giving us the mandate to work with younger people. Uh, empowering them, uh, more education and training opportunities, uh, networking uh, opportunities, etc. So we now are really trying to heavily invest in creating uh, um, the, the younger people's networks and capacities to um, to start thinking about it, learning from each other, and networking. And, and as a result, they will be able to reach more effectively uh, to their political leaders. And, and I'm beginning to see some interesting results. Um, you know, when the NPT uh, Redcon review conference was postponed, there are younger people's organizations that are taking initiatives and, and organizing online Zoom conferences, um, you know, as an input into the, the future NPT uh, review conference. So we need to do more of those things. Um, I would like very much to have uh, uh, Greta Thunberg of um, uh, nuclear disarmament um, amongst the younger people. Dr. Perry, tell us about the William Perry Project, because you've been working with younger people. The William Perry Project has a goal of educating people about nuclear dangers, particularly educating young people. And since we decided we wanted to educate young people, we thought we ought to have some young people on our project. So indeed, my granddaughter, Lisa Perry, who's just 30, is playing a major role in that project. In particular, she was the project leader on putting together a blog, which will be released next month on nuclear dangers and nuclear issues. I have her represent me and to go in my place and many things that I've been doing myself. So if we want to get young people interested, we ought to bring young people into discussions. We ought to get them involved in doing things. I find out that they are very quick at understanding these issues once we explain it to them. They just don't ever hear about them ordinarily. But that's not because they're not capable of understanding. And when they do understand, they're willing to act on it. So I think I would completely agree with the Secretary, Deputy, under Secretary General's comments about the importance of bringing young people into this issue. We all ought to work on that because they're the ones going to have to we have failed to solve this problem. We left it in their laps. They're going to have to solve it, so we better get them educated. You've done some of the younger people. I think Stanford students have made some videos and used social media in some very interesting ways to try to educate their fellow young people, students, about nuclear issues. One of the things that young people do about it is they use the kind of media that they're used to using. And so they bring in a different way of, I think of educating people as giving lectures and writing books and writing papers. They use social media to educate. And that's, I think, what's needed to get the young people on board. So, uh, yes, Rose. I just wanted to uh, endorse uh, what our previous two speakers had to say, but also to say you would find some unexpected pockets around the country where young people are becoming involved. For example, uh, when I was working on uh, issues related to our ratification process for the comprehensive test ban about five years ago, I went to uh, Mississippi, to Oxford, Mississippi, to the university there, Ole Miss, and I met with a group of students who had produced a documentary film about the nuclear tests that had occurred in Mississippi, which many people do not remember at all. There were some particular uh, salt domes down there, some, some salt mines that were used for some particular nuclear tests, and the students had gone back and found uh, people who had been affected, whose property had been affected, and made a documentary that was fascinating. And yet, at that time, they were having trouble getting the word out. I do find that that is 
a problem getting the word out. And I'm hopeful, uh, as both Bill and Izumi said, that now in the age of more attention to uh, using social media, number one, but also in doing work remotely through Zoom and other video conferencing, that we can accelerate getting the word out on these issues because I know there are pockets of interest and concern around the country. The downwinders in Utah, that's another place I found a lot of interest among the students at Brigham Young University in, in Utah, because many of them had grandparents who had been affected by uh, being downwind of the nuclear tests in Nevada, and they were very, very strong family memories that they, they really drew on. So I think if we can pull people out, uh, there is concern and interest around the country. Governor Brown, I'm aware of your activities uh, working directly with the Russians, sort of based on historic preservation, uh, your Fort Ross project. Could you say a little bit about that? Because you managed to get a dialogue going with the Russians in a pretty unique way. Yeah, the Fort Ross dialogue uh, started, I didn't initiate it, but uh, it, it revolves around the Fort Ross Park and the uh, the conservancy there. And the fact that this was the Russian uh, presence in America in 18, 1814 to about 1841. And there are Russian sailors buried there. And that cemetery has been restored. Uh, the Russian ambassador, both to the UN and to the United States, uh, came to the ceremony uh, two years ago. Uh, there was a, a Russian uh, patriarch who, who blessed the proceedings. So it is a point of uh, convergence where the Americans and the Russians historically uh, were present and were intermarried with some of the indigenous people. So it's a very good lesson that we can learn from the past. Going forward, I do want to make a point that our Fort Ross dialogue, we did have Dr. Perry there. We had uh, the Russian ambassador Antonov. And uh, the New York Times had a little story where they talked about, oh, there's some Russian money that um, supports some of the Fort Ross dialogue. Well, that's true, but there's also American money. But the point being that uh, Russia has become such a salacious topic for even papers like the New York Times that it becomes very difficult to have a serious topic, that so many of these other things, whether it's uh, hacking uh, emails or whatever the Russians are doing, but the idea of having a dialogue about these fundamental issues is so obvious, but yet uh, beyond the comprehension of what you would otherwise think as very thoughtful people. And I do want to say that our national media, and I will name them, Washington Post, New York Times, MSNBC, they have lots of stories. I'm not going to even judge the merits, but they don't give much attention, if any, to the nuclear danger. Uh, but I would say what we're talking about is removed from the mainstream. So that's why I think the Fort Ross dialogue is important. But even to be part of it is to risk vilification. And uh, and I know that. I had a personal conversation about this one reporter, and we went back and forth for 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And I kept saying, uh, we're talking about uh, nuclear danger and a dialogue to make the world safer on that score. And that was an argument. I never won the argument, um, uh, but I did make it. And I can tell you, this takes courage, it takes persistence, and it takes uh, getting allies in high places. But we are at the point where it reminds me in my early Catholic childhood that it was a, a sin, a venial sin to go into a Protestant church. And even for my sister to be a bridesmaid or a Made of honor in a, in a Protestant wedding was not allowed. So we're kind of at that point now with Russia. You can't talk to them. You can't uh, say anything that's not negative. And that's very counterproductive. So I think we got to get back to the basics. And the basics are that nuclear weapons can cause millions, hundreds of millions of deaths, billions. So that's number one. And number two, let's deal with it. I mean, I keep thinking that, you know, Roosevelt and Churchill, Churchill especially didn't like Stalin. But when it came to Nazi uh, Germany, that was a bigger evil. Well, uh, if we have a nuclear blunder and 10 or 20 or 50 million people die, uh, that would be worse, be greater in magnitude than Nazi Germany. So there's plenty of reason without having to go any further. It's a big danger. 
Russia, it has to be part of the partnership here. And, but that idea is deviant to the mainstream uh, media, mainstream culture. So we got our work cut out for us, young people, and we got a lot of work with the old people because they, they, their minds are very confused at this point and need to be unconfused. So that's what I'm interested in, in the dialogue and talking to my Democratic friends who in many ways uh, sound like the, uh, well, they're not even the Republicans. It's very similar to what it was in the old days when people would say you're a little pink or you're a fellow traveler. That's kind of what you are now. Being uh, in dialogue is to be a little pink, uh, using an old term from the 50s. So we got our work cut out for us in just making room, making space for frank discussion uh, with the Russians. And the same thing is true as becoming true with China. We're not going to be able to talk to them pretty soon either. So America is getting to the point where talk is evil if the one you're talking to is on this list of our main adversaries. So we're getting to the point where we need to wrap up. But among this group of senior statespeople, we have a super senior statesperson. And I'm going to give him the last word, Secretary Schultz. Uh, we are so pleased that at your stage in life, you're able to provide leadership in this area. Tell us what thoughts you have to leave with everyone here. Well, I'm in my hundredth year, but I feel like a young man. So here's the thing I think we should focus on. Get somebody who Mr. Trump likes and trusts and persuade that person that he would score a big point electorally if he invited Rose Godmiller to the White House and deputize her to handle the New START program for her and get it renewed and up and running. That sounds like a good top of the to-do list. <laughs> I would like to uh, give a huge thank you to our panel, former Secretary of State George Schultz, former Secretary of Defense William Perry, former NATO Deputy Secretary General Rose Gottemuller, United Nations Undersecretary of Disarmament Izumi Nakamitsu, and Governor Jerry Brown, also, a big thanks to you, Professor Raymond Jeanlow, for being with us. And of course, to the Cooley Law Firm and its CEO, Frederick Barron, who have generously underwritten this program. We are so grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. In addition to thanking our fabulous panel, thank you to all of our viewers online. The club will continue to provide online program in the days ahead. In fact, we're doing so on almost a daily basis. So please visit us regularly at commonwealthclub.org. I'm Gloria Duffy. And now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club on probably the most important topic of our time is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.